Good evening. I would like to ask for your uh, grace tonight. I feel terrible. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, the performance of a sermon, I don't really know, but the scripture, man, it's good. Um, and I hope that Jesus speaks really powerfully through it. And I'd love for you guys to, uh, um, <clears throat> well, quite frankly, it's a hard passage of scripture to preach on. Uh, and it's not fun to talk about, but I don't know why you came tonight. I know why the Lord brought you here. Um, he's going to ask something of you uh, that we're going to find in the text. So uh, I just appreciate your grace with uh, maybe my tone or something like that. I feel terrible. But um, also, uh, we announced this earlier, but just because people will forget no matter how much we say it. Um, next week, we're doing the worship service in Patton Chapel at 7 o'clock. Uh, it's kind of cool. I've been here a decade, and we have had offices in five locations, worship services in four. Um, the house has been on this campus as a formal entity for more than 25 years. It has roots back into the 70s. We've actually never done a worship service in Patton Chapel. So that's kind of cool. We get to do that for the first time next week. All right, that's cool. So anyway, show up at 7. Uh, it's a huge party with, like, tons of free things after here. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's true, but somebody will make it happen maybe. Okay, um... All right, one of, the things, one of the things I love about uh, Jesus, I'm, <laughs> my tone, I could say that more excitedly. Um, one of the things I love about Jesus, for real though, is the way he responds when people say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Like every time somebody wants to follow him, the way he responds to them is it, pretty intense. I don't know if you guys um, know these passages of scripture, but he says things like this, give up your life. I want to follow you, Jesus, give up your life. Hate your life. Sell everything. Jesus, I really want to follow you. I'm ready to be a Christian. I want you to stop for a minute, Jesus would say, and I want you to count the cost. Do you really want to be a Christian? Like it's the exact opposite of salesmen today <laughs> or saleswomen today, right? There's no angle with the Lord. He's not swim, swindling people. He's not trying to like, um, as you're walking out the door, he's not trying to say, whoa, 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 I'm gonna drop the price a little bit. Come on back. There's a better warranty. Nothing like that. People say, I wanna follow you, Jesus. And he begins to say kind of hard things back. Really? There's this one scene. It's one of the most moving to me in the gospels because it speaks to my skepticism and the honesty of Peter is so refreshing to me that um, Jesus starts talking about his body and blood Incidentally, we're doing communion tonight, and that's a crazy idea. The, the Christians have often throughout history been accused as being cannibals because we have a celebration right in the middle of our worship service where we talk about eating and drinking body and blood, right? It's kind of nuts. And Jesus is talking about his eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and it says many people from that point on, John says, turned away and did not follow him again. And if you didn't know what the next verse is, just based on our culture, based on the fact that I, I, I would say uh, I, I know that this is true. I go, Jesus is going to run after them. Like he's he's going to tell them. He's going to convince them. He's got a book he's going to give them. He's got a sermon he wants to preach at them, something. I don't know. When they walk away and John says, many of them left and never followed him again, Jesus turns and he looks to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? Like the way, the way Jesus responds when the question at stake is, do you want to follow him, is intense. Peter's honesty, I, I mentioned, is so refreshing. He says, Lord, where else could we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And I like it, because, and I'm probably reading into the text a little bit. There's a word for that called eisegesis. <laughs> it's actually a word. Uh, reading into the text. Um, uh, where I sort of wonder if Peter's like, dude, I'd go anywhere, man. I just, I don't know where else to go. 
You just said that, that we have to eat your body and drink your blood, Jesus. That's really hard. Uh, I just don't know where else to go. You're the one who has words of eternal life. I, I, I like this, and it's like every time somebody is interested in following him, he warns them. It's like a warning. And that's what these are, right? Like, you can't follow me if you're not willing to give up anything. It's going to cost you your entire life. And so before you say yes, let me warn you about the cost. Before you say, I want to be a Christian, I want to follow Jesus, I want to know him, I want life in Christ, I want to whatever, 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 I want to get saved, be born again, I don't know what your tradition is, whatever it is, Jesus often warns people, warns them. Before you say yes, think about this for a minute, because it's not going to help you or my church or my kingdom if you're surprised later and you feel like you got duped. I'm warning you, think about it. It's refreshing for me because of my skeptical heart. I read through the scriptures and I see the way Jesus responds. And he helps me, helps me to remember or helps me know that he's being sober and honest with me as I come to him. I'm bringing this up tonight because we're hitting a point now for the rest of the semester. We've got a two-week sort of interlude around Christmas. But as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount this semester, um, we've actually already finished the main crux of Jesus' sermon. And the whole end of it is just warnings. That's all it is. The whole end of his sermon, he's like finished it, do unto the summary of everything, all the law and the prophets, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And now I gotta warn you about some things. And he begins to do this and we're gonna unpack those in the ensuing weeks. But the reason I'm talking about warnings right now is because right at the end of Jesus' sermon, he starts warning the people listening. And he strings together a list of these warnings to finish it out. They're hard to hear, hard to preach. But he warns us, I think, in great kindness so that we might know what we're getting into. Jesus preaches one of the most fantastic, maybe the most fantastic sermon in the history of the world in Matthew chapter five, chapters five through seven. How do you respond to it? When he finishes that sermon, right? When he says, now let's pray, you know, sort of thing. I don't know what you're gonna do, right? But he, he decides right before he ends it, he wants to just warn you because of what you might do. And I think if we heed his warnings, if we heed it tonight in this text, I think we'll find that he has abundant life for us. It's a crazy idea. But he's warning us tonight. He's gonna tell us to do something tonight because he wants everybody in this room to have life, an abundant life. Let's pray. I need your prayers. Let's pray together and then we'll get into this, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, I ask for your anointing over my words. May they be true. Would you speak through me, uh, sinner? who has never ever come close to earning any of what you've given me. God, I I, I proclaim truth that I believe because you've given me the gift of belief and that's it. I pray your spirit would be on the loose in this room tonight, turning hearts toward you and um, giving us all an ability to do something we, we don't do well and that is see ourselves clearly, see ourselves soberly. And may we hear the call that you placed upon our lives. Would you be honored and pleased by this night? God, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, It's it's a confession of sorts. It's not uncommon for me to leave a church service, to leave something like this. Um, I get in the car after uh, Sunday morning with my wife and my kids, and on the way home, uh, it's not uncommon for me to turn to my wife, Anna, and say, hey, what did you think of the sermon? You know, we talk about that for a little bit. Or uh, this happens on staff too. <clears throat> uh, on Thursdays, we actually get together 
uh, and we, we do some training meeting stuff, but one of the things we do is evaluate Tuesdays. We sort of evaluate Tuesdays. Like, uh, what are we supposed to do with God's word? What do we do when God speaks? What do we do uh, when, when his word is presented um, with authority and with power? Uh, what are we supposed to do? And I think my actions often would lead me to believe Here's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to walk out these doors and as I walk back to my dorm room, I'm supposed to give it a grade. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to take the sermon that I just heard and I'm supposed to evaluate it. Like that's what the appropriate thing to do with a sermon is, right? Like just ask, what did you think? Not what am I going to do now? Not what call has God placed upon my life? Not what did he stir up that I need to confess and repent of? Not, not something that leads me to action. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a, well now it gets complicated because Facebook has more options, but it's a like or a dislike button is really what we do often with, with sermons and these sorts of things. I do this, right? And I think when Jesus is coming to the end of this sermon, he knows this about us and he's warning us. He's commanding us in the end to do something to do something. Jesus warns us with the command, and this is how our passage starts. And you can put it up on the screen, please, Daniel, that'd be great. He warns us with this command, enter, enter. That's a command, and it's a plural command. It's everybody who's listening right now. It's, it, the word is an imperative, it's a command. Here's what I want you to do, enter, do something. Do this with the words that you've heard. I'm not asking you to nod your head. I'm not asking you to agree with me and say, man, Jesus, that's a great sermon. Or agree with my doctrine. I'm not asking you to do those things. I'm asking you to take action. I'm asking you to enter, to enter. To enter what? Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But the small gate and the narrow road that leads to life, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Enter that one. You see what's on the mind of Jesus as he ends this sermon in Matthew chapter seven and as he begins to sort of have a, an epilogue or something, a closing to the sermon. What's on his mind is life and destruction. Read those words. He's concerned about life and destruction, either or for the people that he's preaching to, he's speaking to. He's not concerned primarily with correct doctrine or right attitude or good morals or the way that you're acting in this very moment in terms of like how you treat your roommates and all these other kinds of things and the ways that we measure up law. That's not the, the primary focus for him in this very moment. What he's really thinking about is robust life for the people listening to him. And clearly he thinks, if you read that, that many will miss it. Few find it, he says, because the way to life is small and narrow. And before I say anything else, I, I know uh, from asking some of you and from my own experience that seeing a word like few in this context is terrifying for many of us. And so I wanna address that real quick first, right? First of all, Jesus means few. That's not like another word there. Uh, he really does mean few, but we also know from other instances in the Bible that Jesus says many will be saved. He says multiple times that many will be saved. And the truth is, I, I just, I, I wanna get through this quickly because I don't think the crux of this, this, uh, the idea here is like a statistic. Jesus is not in this passage trying to give us a numerical value on, the, on who is going to be saved and who is not. He's, that's not the primary focus of this text. And quite frankly, it's a really mysterious thing that we don't know how to number. 
When other texts say many and this one says few, what are we supposed to do with that if what we're asking is a number? And I think the answer is he's not talking about a statistic right now. That's not the idea. He's not hoping that we'd hear him and go, oh man, I always wondered how many. He's trying to warn us that the way to life is overlooked and it's hard to see. It's narrow, which literally means, I'll probably come back to this, it literally means narrow, means crushing or cramping. It means something that anybody who's claustrophobic would hate. That's what it means. That's what narrow means. It means not just straight and narrow road, like a, a small walkway, something that's hard to fit things through. That's what it means. Why tell us this? Why does he tell us that few find it? Friends, I think he tells us it's not so we start thinking about numbers, but so that we start looking for it and stop assuming that it will be obvious to us without some effort. If I told you there's something in this room that most of you have not seen and most people will never see it, if I give you the chance, what's gonna happen is you're gonna start looking around trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Jesus is doing something like that here. He's drawing our attention to something that we overlook and don't pay attention to very often. Few find it, friends. The broad gate, the wide one, that's the one everyone walks through. The person listening to Jesus is not to look around at what everyone else is doing, but look at Jesus and ask where we might find the narrow gate. Jesus, it's hard to see, so where is it? What is it? In the coming weeks, we're gonna hear Jesus get specific on this. Like I said, he ends the sermon with a number of warnings. And he's gonna talk about the specific ways that we might miss it. But tonight, I wanna kind of zoom out a little and speak to the basic idea here that there are only two ways, two gates, not three, not four, definitely not as many as there are people in the world. Jesus is not pluralistic in that sense here. There's two ways. There are only two gates, and he's not introducing a new idea. I mean, some of these ideas may come to mind or may spark memories for you, but when I think about the story of God's people throughout history, of which Jesus is one, right? He's, this, he's the Jew of Jews. Think about things. There were two trees, just two. I mean, there were more trees, but the decision that God offered Adam and Eve was everything and another. Everything and another, two options, Adam and Eve, two. There were two choices, there were two sons, there were two kingdoms, there were two gates, there were two roads. Next week, there's two kinds of prophets, there's two kinds of disciples, there's two foundations upon which we build our house. There are two choices and that's it. Over and over and over again in the Bible, there are two choices. In Deuteronomy, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. There's the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, just two. There's the way of life, there's the way of death, just two. It's binary. Life or death, that's it. There's only one way to life, there's only one way to death. There are not many ways, there are not many different kinds of life or kinds of ways that, to get there, at least not the kind Jesus is talking about. He says there is one narrow small gate that leads to life, the broad, popular scope of the rest of life is the other gate which leads to death. I had a stark image of this the very last time I was in New York City. I'm going soon with a missions team from here. Um, I remember wanting to see, walking around a certain part of New York City, walking into St. Patrick's Cathedral 
Um, it's beautiful. And of course, um, in the very center, looking down the aisle of the church, or if you looked this way up at the, top, at the front of the church, what you'll see is a giant crucifix. You'll see Jesus on this cross. And I remember looking around at the gold and the, and the, 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 the decorations in the room, the stained glass windows, the, the ornate architecture of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, and it was beautiful and it was lovely. And I had, some, I had some questions about what this meant and that meant, and I was just sort of soaking it up, right, you know? So at one point, I'm standing up front, and I start to turn around and walk out, and I start walking down the aisle out St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the doors are really big, and they open, and when you open the doors, it lets tons of, like on a bright day, it lets tons of light just directly in to the main area, right, to the sanctuary, okay? Anybody know what's like right out the front door of St. Patrick's Cathedral? Anybody know? Daniel, would you put that picture up for me? If you got it, I sent it to you really late. Do you guys know what this is right here on the right? This is Atlas, right? Atlas is the man who holds up the world on his own strength. I remember walking out of St. Patrick's Cathedral and I got like goosebumps. I went, my goodness. There's a war going on. Like, there's a legitimate war going on. Like, the moment I walk out the doors of this church, what I'm told, and this man looks immaculate, like every guy what should look like this, you know, it's sort of happening in my head. And every narrative I've ever heard in my life, my teachers, my parents, my friends, like every story I read and book I read, every time I hear of a success story, what I think is I should be able to do what Atlas does, hold up the world. And it was just such a strange contrast, Right? Like I'm sitting here uh, turning around and I see Jesus nailed to a cross, lifted up in front of the whole world. He's the only one who could actually do this. There's never actually been a man that could do this. It's a myth, okay? But Jesus actually could. Like he actually upholds the universe by the very word of his power right now. The fact that you're not imploding or exploding right this very minute is because God is sustaining your very breath and being in this moment. And he laid all of that down. And I stood there literally in the doorway and I just went, ah, you know, like, and I just got, I, lo I really lost my breath and everybody around me was like, you are such a nerd, you know? But I was like, I, I was like, I crushed. I felt like I was just entering this huge battlefield. Friends, th that to me is a picture of, of the two choices we have in life. All of life is this. I don't think this is accidental either. I don't know who did it. <laughs> I don't know who went second. I kind of like it, but, but there's this battle going on between life and between death. It should be obvious that if you actually tried to lift up the world, it would crush you. But of course, all of us keep trying. And, and, and it seems obvious from a cultural standpoint that walking into a church and seeing God killed on a cross, it seems to me like they've lost, like they lose. Seems like that anyway. There are only two ways. One is wide and broad and many walk down it. What is that gate? What is the wide gate? Quite simply, the gate and that road <clears throat> are atlas. It's the way of earning salvation, of earning blessing by the work that you put in in life, of establishing your righteousness, your right living and your right life, right? Establishing your righteousness by the power of your works making every attempt to control God to get blessed by living a certain way. Friends, this is everything but Jesus. Everything but Jesus. The wide gate and the broad road is riddled through every religion and every way of life apart from Christ. You can call it karma. You can call it getting what you deserve. You can call it good people go to heaven. 
You can call it American politics. You can call it earning a living. The whole mad world is bent on it. It's, it's so wide that every single religion and culture fits in it, walks down it, every single one. The rules are a little different in each category or place, and here it's five rules. Here it's two, here it's six, right? And there's so, there are many apparent ways to earn it. Give to the poor, live simply, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be tolerant. That's a big one today. This is one of the ways that you, that you demonstrate that you're righteous or that you kind of earn it a little bit. You earn a place in the public square by being tolerant. Even doing to others what you want them to do to you. Jesus said that's a good summary of the law. All of these are so often done for no other reason but to try and secure a place at a table somewhere for all of us. I don't know what that table is for you. I think it's God's. You may not know it. You may have a manifestation or a picture of it that's very different than, my, than mine. But all of us want to sit at some table and we think by our efforts and by our merits we can get there. The wide gate is hearing Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and thinking, I need to do all of what he just said in order to have the life that he's promised. That's the wide gate. That is an option. It is actually an option laid before you. One of the only two, in fact, that he has laid before you. Every single one of you. It is an option that you have. And he emphatically tells us that the end of that option, if you choose to take it, is destruction. Adam and Eve could actually eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If only they'd known that God would have given them that knowledge anyway. They actually could, and he warned them right before they did it. Before they did it. If you eat of that tree, you will die. You have the option to take the broad and wide road. You really do. You have the option to decide that from here on out, you are going to earn it. You're going to earn God's favor, earn his blessing by the things that you do or don't do. You have that option. And Jesus says the, way, the end of that is destruction. Tim Keller says it this way. He's a Presbyterian preacher up in New York City. Every religion and every human heart, unless the Holy Spirit and the Bible grab a hold of you, believes this is how it works. You give God a good record, and then God does good things for you. You give God a good record, you know, and you do this and that, and then God will bless you, answer your prayers. You give God a good record, and then God does things for you. That's what everybody believes. That's what we all believe. You may not use that exact same phrase or language, right? But the wide gate and the broad road and many, 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 many will enter through it. Just lift your eyes and look around the culture. Outside of what Jesus is offering in himself, Every single other way of life offers the same thing. By your works, you will get saved. Every way of life. By your works, you will get saved. And the small gate, the narrow road, it flips this on its head. It's just the opposite. It's not living a certain life in order to get blessed. Although you may try, remember, that's an option for you. It's receiving the blessedness before you even put forth effort. It's receiving the blessing of God before you ever begin to step or walk or do anything. It's crazy. It's narrow, right? It, the Jesus says it's narrow or, or I said crushing or cramped because all of my works will not fit through that opening. All of my works will not fit through that. Quite frankly, it's just big enough for me. 
It's just big enough for you. And that's it. Not for the identity that I cling to so tightly. Not to, not, it's not big enough for the possessions that I hold most dear. It's, not, it's just big enough for me. And though it fits me perfectly, though that narrow gate fits me perfectly, though it's just the right size, I still try over and over again to take this huge bag of all the stuff that I've done or not done that I think God's gonna look at me and be like, man, that's so great. You totally deserve a seat at my table. And I try to like force that through the door and it won't fit. And I hear Jesus saying, count the cost. You must hate your life. You must lay it down. There's only room for one thing in this gate. It's so narrow that you alone are the only thing that fits. That's it. It's too narrow. I must go through it alone. I must leave my life and find out what's on the other side. It's narrow. That's what he means by narrow. He also says it's small. And I think the idea here is just this. The other road is so common and so popular in our world that the other one, this one Jesus is offering, seems like a joke. It seems tiny compared to the mammoth idea of pulling yourself up on your own strength, of learn how to do it yourself. Get yourself together. It's, it's so tiny compared to that. That's huge and broad and wide and everywhere littered all over the world. In our homes, with our friends, with our romances, with our teachers in school, in politics, in international politics, in everything, it's all over. And compared to that, next to the machine of works and the overwhelming lie that's all around us, it seems so tiny. Many of us, of course, I think, uh, let me say this. I think some of us, uh, are, we're in two different boats maybe in this room. I, I, there's always two things, right? Um, some of us in this room are really hoping and longing for the day that we can stand before God and because we didn't do those things or because we did do these things, that he's gonna give us a badge, a jewel in our crown. He's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant because of all the things that I did. That is a works-based Salvation, that is the broad and wide gate. Jesus does wanna say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're gonna come against that in two weeks, uh, actually after Easter now. So it's like four weeks. So if you really wanna hold out, good luck. Um, but, but some of us don't actually think, and I think this actually, this, the root is the same thing. Some of us don't actually think we're gonna stand before God and hear well done because you're not like that joker over there. I'm not like those people who are bigots or sinners in some particular way. Uh, you know, I'm not like the Republicans or the Democrats or either of those two um, or whatever the thing is, you know, I don't know what it is for you. Some of us think that. Some of us, though, we actually think we're going to stand before God one day and it's going to be terrible. He's not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to say, what the heck did you do? You messed up. You failed even at being you. I regret making you. We're afraid something like that's going to happen. And I think we're afraid of that, those of us who are, for the same reasons that the other crew thinks they're gonna hear God's praise and pleasure. Because we feel like all of this, the, the favor of God is dependent upon our work. God's pleasure or praise of me is totally dependent on my merit, on what I do or don't do. That's a broad and wide road. In both cases, it's the same thing. The narrow road, which looks so small compared to that, this, the, the word for it, the really big word for it, and I asked you guys to offer this to me today, is grace. 
That's the narrow gate, it's grace. Grace specifically in Jesus Christ. And the nature of grace, if you don't know that, is that it's never earned, ever. You cannot earn grace, it is given freely. You can only do two things, again, you can only accept it or reject it, that's all you can do. Grace in Christ Jesus is the other gate. It just seems so small to the world economies and to the superstars who work their way to the top of our culture. It just seems like it'll never work for the utter messes that all of us are compared to those people and those kinds of things, right? It's too small. It's not powerful enough. I'm looking at Atlas and I'm looking at God killed. And that seems awful tiny compared to a guy that held up the whole world. It is, though, the only other option. That doesn't mean it works. (laughs) There's only one way to find that out. It doesn't mean that, that Jesus is true to his promise that you will find life. You won't know that until you go through the gate. But he tries to step back and say, standing before these two gates, he just says to you, in spite of all the messages of the world, enter it. Accept my free gift of grace to you. Go through it, for it is the only way to life. And you might look at everything else, the accolades, the merit stuff. You might think you're better than your roommates or better than your siblings or better than your parents. And that might cause you to go, you know what? I think I got a shot actually at earning the favor of God. Or you might be in the opposite boat. We are, you're not nearly as good in our, in our cultural mindset and the cultural hierarchies as your siblings or your parents or somebody else, your roommates or something. And you might think, I don't even want to try. <laughs> because I know the end of this story too. In both cases, Jesus says, that kind of thinking, that kind of choice for living that way will end in destruction. There's only one other way. You guys might know this line. We don't like to talk about it in the American West. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Apostle Paul will later say, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. He's the door. Jesus is the gate. He's the road, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And he stands against the reigning tides of the world. Because here's the thing, you can't manipulate him. He's not doing that to you and he will not have it done to him. You can't earn him, you can't make him love you, you can't make him love you more, you also can't make him love you less. You cannot. We have trouble accepting that truth. We have trouble accepting that, I think, the small and narrow gate, because we want to fit all of our stuff through and prove that we've earned something for many of us. Or others of us sort of think, I, can't, I don't want to go through that small and narrow gate because I don't want to bring all this stuff in there with me. It won't fit anyway. Those of you who've done a lot and those of you who've done little, it doesn't matter. The gate isn't big enough for all that stuff that you're talking, that you're talking about. It's not. The small gate is grace in Christ Jesus. I want to argue that there are three reasons, I think, why we really struggle to accept this. Why the popular road, the cultural road, even though every single one of you at some level knows that you will not actually earn satisfaction one day. You can't work enough jobs, marry the right person, have enough friends, get enough 100% on tests or whatever the, I don't know what it is, be a good storyteller or joke teller or I don't know what, I don't know what your thing is. You can't do it enough to where one day you're sitting around at 70 and you go, think I lived the perfect life. I'm righteous now. It won't happen. And you know that. You know that. 
But the tide of the world keeps pushing us down that road. It's like we're in this huge throng of people and they just keep walking behind us and we can't get off. I think there's three reasons why we really struggle to do that. We, we struggle to look for the small gate, why we struggle to look for grace, why we struggle to accept grace. And the first and most obvious, in light of this teaching, is that we don't know how to accept grace because we think we need to earn grace too. So I, it's this incessantly wide gate. So how many of us have trouble in this room accepting help? Thank you for a couple people raising your hand. You didn't earn anything by doing that. Um, how many of us have trouble accepting help? How many of us have trouble letting other people bless us? Like most of us seem to have no problem in the right circumstances offering help so long as, and this is works in, listen to how insidious this is. I don't have any problem blessing you or doing something for you so long as you receive it the right way, which is a kind of earning it, right? And here's a picture that I have in my mind, right? So just imagine I come over later this week to help you move like a dresser into your house or something, right? Like you're all by yourself and you say, hey, Jason, I really need you to move this dresser and a bunch of people in the city pay you to help me. So come on over, you know? And I come over um, later this week and I help you move this dresser in and you sort of not knowing how to accept the gift of me helping you, you say, hey, can I buy you dinner or something? Not just because you want to spend time with me, not just because you want to enjoy fellowship together, but because you feel uncomfortable that like you're now in my debt. I just moved this dresser in and now what do you got to do? You offer me something to drink, buy me dinner, say thank you, 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 thank you so much so that you feel good about yourself. And so you offer to buy me dinner and what I do, because I also am guilty of the same thing, I say, no, 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 you don't need to buy me dinner. But of course, using that word need, think of what I've just communicated. There's some line somewhere that if I had helped a little more, you might ha actually have had to need to buy me dinner. But, but I didn't do enough to earn that yet. So just keep your dinner to yourself, promise. I'll do a couple more things, then you can buy me dinner. And I don't wanna nitpick on that too much. Right? That's a pretty basic conversation. It's not like a huge, huge deal, but there's, this is insidious and it's everywhere. Like it's in so many of our conversations, this idea that we cannot accept grace because we think we have to earn it somehow. But that's not the way grace works. Grace is totally free. That's what we mean every time we talk about it. It's a gift. And we've t we tear grace apart from the inside out because we believe we have to earn it. It reminds me of, uh, of a friend of mine whose mother, um, they get stressed out every Christmas because her mom buys her gifts and if she doesn't love it, her mom starts crying which is sort of a strange dynamic, which happens, I think, to some extent with a lot of us with gift giving, but it's really dramatic in their household. Like she has to open this box and, and she has to go, oh my gosh, mom, I love it so much because if she doesn't do it, her mom is crushed. And there's this sort of picture of gift giving, but that's not at all what's happening. What's happening here is extortion and exchange. What's happening here is a system of, hey, look, I spent X amount of money on you and what I, what I demand to see is pleasure in your face. I demand it. And when you are not pleased by the money that I spent on you and the gift that I bought from you, I'm, 